Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we're doing on the book of Acts. Uh, we have now come to part six in this 12-part series. Um, as always, I want to mention both the notes and the audio recordings for all of these are available through a number of different means. Uh, you can go to our website at new-life-ministries.org and download the notes and the recordings there. You can also listen live Wednesday nights at 7.30, either by telephone or online at mixlr.com, and you would follow the broadcast name of New Life Ministries. Uh, the recordings are also stored there at MixLR, so you can access them there in addition to the website. Uh, it's also preferable, if you can, to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast. That way you automatically get updates of both any notes and recordings as they're added. So uh, we try to make it as easy as possible for everyone to participate, even if maybe your schedule doesn't allow you to come on live at 7.30 Wednesday night. You can listen in some other time. Anyway, I'm excited about where we're at now in the study. I think this is a very critical uh, dividing point that we've come to in the book of Acts for several reasons. We ended last time at the closing verses of Acts chapter 7 with the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the early church. Stephen was one of the seven, we usually call them deacons, they're referred to as the seven in the book of Acts. He was one of the seven chosen in chapter 6 to help with the serving of food to the widows, but obviously God had much more in mind for Stephen than waiting on tables because he was doing mighty signs and wonders. He was full of faith, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, he had great boldness, which got him in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And as we pointed out, maybe if he had just tweaked a few of his words, he might have gotten out of trouble. But in his boldness and zeal for the Lord, he delivered the Lord's message, and it got him killed. And... As we closed out chapter 7 in the book of Acts, there was an almost casual reference to a young man named Saul. In Acts 7, verse 38, as they were killing Stephen, it says they dragged him out of the town, pelted him with rocks, the ringleaders took off their coats, and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. And then we again begin Acts chapter 8 with this man Saul again in the account. We're going to hear a lot about Saul now, and he's actually going to take center stage in the coming chapters of Acts. We know him better as Paul the Apostle, but he's now Saul the Persecutor. And we want to begin tonight, and if you're following in the notes, this is page 83, and again, 
part six of the book of Acts, uh, the gospel advances to Judea and Samaria. We'll be covering chapters eight and nine in this sixth part of our study. Acts 8, verses 1 to 3. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture, and it's just loaded with lots and lots of things which we will at least try to touch on, but we could probably go into much more depth on a number of points. And Saul was there. We already learned that at the end of chapter 7. Saul was witnessing this horrendous execution of an innocent man, Stephen. He had done nothing wrong. He had not even violated any of the laws or customs of the Jews. His crime was his faith in Jesus Christ. His crime was his faithfulness to deliver the message that the Holy Spirit gave him to speak to these jealous, arrogant Jewish leaders. That was his only crime. And as the stones are raining down on his head, and he's breathing out his last, the scriptures are very, very clear. Saul was there. Saul was seeing all this. He was a part of the moment. He was caught up in the emotion. And we are specifically told Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. He wasn't just uh, an objective bystander. He wasn't just there witnessing this event. He was a part of it. He was giving his full consent, his full approval to Stephen's death. And Luke now keeps mentioning this man Saul because he's going to be such an important figure in the next phase of early church history. By the way, this word in the Greek that for us is translated giving approval. Saul was giving approval to his death. It literally means to think well of, to feel gratified with, to be pleased, or to assent to. In other words, Paul's all in. He's, it's just as if he's there hurling a few stones of his own. He is in full agreement with pelting this guy to death with stones. He's enjoying it. He feels gratified with it. Somehow, he's taking pleasure 
in the execution of this innocent man. Saul's approval was not some disconnected or disinterested uh, agreement with what these wild persecutors were doing. He's one of them. He's fully in with what they're doing, and it actually seems that he's taking great delight in watching this Jewish fanatic being crushed beneath the stones and breathing out his last. And the next scripture is just as significant. On that day, very specific, Luke is giving us the account. Not a couple weeks later or in the process of time, but that same day, it's like something exploded. A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. This isn't just about Stephen now. They're going to turn on the whole church. And let me keep emphasizing something that we've mentioned along the way, because I think it's important to keep this perspective. We've probably passed through eight, maybe ten years of church history since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Ten years, perhaps, have elapsed, and all we have is a church in Jerusalem. I find that fascinating, and I have to keep reminding myself of that, that we haven't gone into all the world, we haven't gone to Judea or any place, we're stuck in Jerusalem for almost ten years. And all we have to show for Christ's work on the cross, His passion, His death, His resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a Jerusalem Jewish church. That's all we have. And notice the specificity of Luke's account. A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. That's the only church. The Jerusalem church. So now, this hatred, this opposition to Stephen, has exploded onto a much larger scale. They're going to turn all their wrath all their anger on the whole church. So, a great persecution broke out against the church that very day at Jerusalem, except, and this is important too, except the apostles. Everyone else is going to be scattered. All except the apostles will be scattered and leave Jerusalem And get this, by no coincidence, where are they going to go? To Judea and Samaria. Okay, let's break this down. First of all, Stephen's death seemed to trigger something. It it, it set off a whole wave of attack now that's going to come on all the Christians, not just the apostles, not just these seven deacons. It's going to be directed against the whole church. A great persecution. And 
it says everyone except the apostles were scattered. Now, it doesn't specifically state this, but we presume they were running for fear of their lives. They scattered out of fear. People are just running for their lives from Jerusalem, leaving everything, leaving their houses, their businesses. They're just running, scattered from Jerusalem. And the only ones that remain, and we're not really told too much about the reason for this either, but the apostles didn't leave. They remained in Jerusalem. Perhaps because they had more faith, we're just speculating, perhaps they were not going to be moved by fear, and they were ready to, to face the worst. Maybe they were also prepared to give their lives just as Stephen had. We don't know why, but the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Everyone else is scattered. And let me insert something here. The more you study the scriptures, the more this is going to impact you. Every word of God is true. Every prophecy, every promise, anything God has ever said, He's watching over it to make sure it is fulfilled, down to the finest details. Jesus put it very simply in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will first pass away before one jot or tittle of all the word of God can pass away. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O God, your word is settled. It's firmly established in heaven. The word of God cannot, will not, never will return void to God. When he says something's going to happen, my friend, it is going to happen exactly the way he said it would happen. Here's a classic example of that. Ten years earlier, maybe they had all forgotten God didn't forget what he said. Ten years earlier, they were told very specifically, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Remember that? Acts 1.8. Kind of a three-part strategy or outline to the whole book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. We completed seven chapters of Acts without moving from Jerusalem. Now we're going to move into phase two, Judea and Samaria. And apparently they weren't too willing, they weren't too excited hitherto, about going there. We don't read about any missionary trips being organized to Judea or Samaria. We don't read about any great interest in taking the gospel to Judea or Samaria. But God, in His sovereignty and infinite wisdom, knows how to get 
the job done. In this case, he uses persecution. Great persecution broke out against the church, and everyone gets scattered, by no coincidence, to Judea and Samaria. How amazing. And I'm wondering if, as they're fleeing there, any of them remembered Acts 1.8. Oh yeah, we were supposed to come here with the gospel, weren't we? We've been getting real comfortable in Jerusalem for the last ten years having a nice Jewish church. And, you know, the, the Bible talks about how God, like a mother eagle, stirs the nest. And that's what's happening here. They had gotten real comfortable in Jerusalem, as you and I can. We can get real comfortable. We can just, you know, kind of snuggle in our little comfort zone. God has a way of shaking things up, stirring things up, and moving us out of our comfort zone to where He wants us to be. Persecution forced them to move out from Jerusalem, and now they find themselves in Judea and Samaria. We'll talk more about what they do once they get there, but let's center our attention for a few minutes on verse 2. So they've been scattered. They're now coming to Judea and Samaria. But back to Jerusalem. Verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. This scripture has helped me a lot, believe it or not. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes we think it's not very spiritual. It's a, it's a sign of weakness, or maybe we don't have enough faith, or we're not spiritual enough. When we lose a loved one, or someone uh, who was a, a dear Christian brother, or maybe a Christian leader, pastor, or friend, or somebody, we lose them, and we feel this grief, we feel this sorrow, we feel like we want to mourn over their loss, but then we sort of stop ourselves and say, no, 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 that's not spiritual. Now give me a break. They mourned deeply over Stephen's death, and they buried him. And the very thing that was bringing joy to Saul... Remember, one of the translations was, this was actually pleasing him. It was somehow gratifying him, watching the death of Stephen. It brought great sadness to the church. And what had brought joy to these Jewish persecutors pierced the hearts of the believers with great sadness and deep lamentation. And Jesus, when he was still on earth, he warned his disciples about this dynamic, even before his own death. Reading from John sixteen twenty, Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. 
you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Of course, speaking about his own death. Yes, you're going to weep. You're going to mourn. The rest of the world will be rejoicing and celebrating. You're going to experience grief, but that grief will turn to joy. Now, let me talk a little bit about Christians and their proper response to the loss of a fellow Christian, the loss of a loved one, or maybe a family member. In 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, Paul is teaching the Thessalonians about the rapture, about the hope that the Christian has beyond the grave, and he begins in verse 13 saying, we don't weep as the world weeps or mourns. They have no hope, Paul says. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say there, we don't cry, we don't shed a tear, we don't mourn when we lose a loved one or a beloved member of the church. That's not what he's saying. We don't mourn the way the world does who has no hope. And then he goes on to explain what is our hope. When a Christian dies, it's called sleeping. The reason it's sleep is they're going to awake again in the resurrection. It's not the end of Joe or Mary or Harry. They're going to be sleeping for a while, but in the resurrection, they will be alive and well. So, yes, we miss them, we mourn their loss, we bury them, we have a funeral celebrating their life, but we do it in hope, not like the world. And I don't know if you've been to worldly funerals where the people weren't believers and they really had no hope beyond this world. My, they're beating their heads on the ground and weeping and wailing and, and almost in a state of insanity. Well, for good reason. They don't have any hope. It's gone. It's over. Game over. But for the Christian, it's not over. We have hope. But here's the point I want to make. In Romans 12, uh, verse 15, Paul exhorts us as Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. One translation says, weep with those who weep. So yes, uh, weeping lasts for a night time, joy comes in the morning. We go through mourning, we go through grief. It's okay to feel those emotions. And... Um, over the years, I've been a bit disturbed by the, by the behavior of some Christians when a loved one has been lost and they try to sound all super spiritual. And let me give you a little bit of free advice. If you're going to comfort someone who's just lost a loved one, don't say this. Don't do this because it doesn't bring comfort. Um, it goes something like this. Maybe I've just lost my mother or my father or my child or uh, someone very close to me, and you're going to come and visit me and say, Cheer up, brother. They're with the Lord now. Okay, I get it. 
I understand all that. I know the theology very well. But that's really not what I need to hear right now. I'd rather you sit down and mourn with me. I'd rather you come, put your arm around my shoulder, and maybe just shed a couple tears with me. That's what the Bible is talking about. We don't need to give uh, some theological essay to somebody on life after death and cheer up, brother, they're with the Lord now. Don't shed any tears. They're with God. Uh, I don't think that settles very well with the mourner. And let me remind you, in John 11, when Mary and Martha had lost Lazarus, and Jesus got there, and he saw them mourning over the loss of their brother, it says there that Jesus was deeply moved. He was deeply moved, and you all know the famous scripture, Jesus wept. He wept with them. He didn't give them some big, long theological explanation. The first thing he does is weep with them. And then he encourages them that, yes, there is a hope. Yes, there is a resurrection. So, my point is, verse 2, godly men, they were godly men, they're not carnal men, godly men mourn. They mourned deeply over the loss of Stephen. And so we should. When we lose a great Christian leader, we lose a beloved member from our church. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to say, wow, I'm going to miss brother so-and-so. Why? Because we loved him. When they saw Jesus weeping at Lazarus's gravesite, they said, wow, look how much Jesus loved him. So, expressing grief, mourning, Weeping over the loss of a loved one is often very much connected with our love for that person. Now, let's move on. That's kind of a little side note. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him, but now we turn our attention back to Saul in verse 3. Saul doesn't care about the mourning, he doesn't care about the funeral. He doesn't care about Stephen, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The New King James says Saul made havoc of the the church. The word that's translated there, destroy or made havoc, is a Greek word, very strong word. It literally refers to a ferocious wild animal seeking and devouring its prey. Kind of like a lion tracking down an antelope and brutally tearing them apart, bringing them to the ground, and ripping them limb to limb. That's the word that's used here to describe Saul's activities. He's like a madman, like a ferocious beast tearing into the church now, dragging men and women off the prison, uh, just 
devouring the church. And we, we can only speculate right now, but I think I pointed out last time, later in Paul's life, he's still talking about this event. It really impacted him greatly. Watching the death of the very first martyr in the early church, Stephen. It impacted him very greatly. And something like a demonic obsession seems to have overtaken Saul. Um, Based on this behavior, he's like a madman now. And apparently, watching Stephen's angelic face, his peaceful composure... Hearing his words, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, standing up, I see the glory of God, and then perhaps most of all, hearing him pray, Lord, forgive them, don't hold this against them. Same spirit that Jesus had, Paul would have known that. All this is now driving him mad. He just wants to kill all the Christians, he wants to snuff out this whole movement because his time is fast approaching. And apparently something is starting to work on the inside. And I've learned by experience, very often when people are close to really having a breakthrough with salvation, that's when they really become vehement in their hatred, their opposition to Christianity. It's because they're getting close And the Holy Spirit is dealing with them. Conviction is really starting to fall on them from the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 3 in the Message Bible. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. So, This has now escalated to something we've never yet seen in the book of Acts. We've seen a couple of times a few of the apostles thrown into jail. We've seen some threats. We've seen their anger level increasing to the point that they wanted to put some of these guys to death. Now, when it actually happened with Stephen, it's like, Somebody flicked a switch, and they all go wild, but especially this man Saul just went wild. He came unhinged, and now he's on a mission to destroy this thing called the church or the way. Devastating the church, locking up many, many Christians, going from house to house, dragging men and women off to jail. Now, let's pause for a second. One way of looking at this is, God, where are you? You've abandoned the church. You've let these wolves and wild lions just start tearing into your people. Stephen's dead. More Christians are surely going to be dying now. All the Christians are getting locked up, and it seems like God's looking the other way. 
Oh, no, 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 no. God's eye is on the sparrow. God knows exactly what happened to Stephen. God knows exactly what's happening to the Jerusalem church. And he is in full control. He's in full control. Saul is not in control. The Jewish leaders are not in control. And you and I need to learn this lesson. Even when persecution, opposition is coming against us, against Christians, against the church, that is not to be mistaken for God losing control. God is in control. As we will see in the next four verses. Let's read now Acts 8 from verse 4 to 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Now, the times and seasons belong to God. This is all obviously under the direction, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. For some reason, God has allowed the Jewish Christians to settle down in Jerusalem and have a fairly comfortable existence for the first ten years of church history. But all that changes in one single day. And let me, let me tell you something. A lot can change suddenly in one day. It's all through the Bible. Things can really change in one single day. Let us never forget that. Now, Saul and all the persecution, all the opposition... It seems very negative, but it's accomplished God's purpose. He's now moved everybody out from Jerusalem. And as they're being scattered, apparently they are hearing something from the Holy Spirit. Maybe they are remembering Acts 1.8, and they're repenting for getting too comfortable in Jerusalem, and maybe even as they're being scattered, they're saying to themselves, okay, now we need to get on with God's program. He told us he wanted us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and not to stop there, but to go to Judea and to Samaria, and then to keep on going to the ends of the earth. So now that we're coming to Judea, now that we're coming into Samaria, let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's be witnesses for Christ. I like this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let me shorten it. 
those who had been scattered preached. They got it. They got the message. They understood what the hand of God just did in one single day. He scattered them because he wants his word to scatter. He wants them to take his word wherever they go, be it Samaria, Judea, or wherever. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You know, it must make the devil so mad. Whatever he plans, schemes, or devises to exterminate the church, God will use to expand the church. So, whatever Satan had planned or devised to exterminate this Jerusalem church, is now actually being used by the sovereign God to expand and extend the church beyond its borders of Jerusalem and to move into Judea and Samaria. How that must infuriate the devil. Listen to verse 4 in the Message Bible. Forced to leave home base the Christians all became missionaries. Wherever they were scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. Important point. This is the very first time in the book of Acts where people other than the apostles and Stephen are specifically mentioned as preaching the gospel. I find that profound. Now, they were all called to preach the gospel to every creature. That was the Great Commission. But, we've now passed through seven full chapters in the book of Acts where we're not really seeing the believers, the members of the church, actively involved in evangelism. They may have been, but there's no mention of it in the scriptures. This is the first mention in the book of Acts of whole-scale evangelism being done by all of the believers, not just apostles, not just prophets, not just those in full-time ministry, not just the seven deacons, or so forth. Everyone, those who had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. I got news for everyone listening to me. Everyone needs to be ready, needs to be prepared to preach the word. Everyone. I don't care if you're called to be a pastor, uh, an evangelist, an apostle, or a Sunday school teacher. All of us need to study to show ourselves approved unto God so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. So that we can present the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. God will open the doors. 
God will move you into the places and the realms where he wants to use you, but everyone must be ready to preach, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now they're all preachers. They're all evangelizing. And it says in verse 5, Philip, remember Philip, He's the second one in the list of the seven. Stephen and then Philip was one of the seven chosen in Acts 6 to wait on tables. He's obviously going to do more than wait on tables now. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. It's very significant that in Acts 1.8, Samaria was specifically mentioned as phase two of their outreach from Jerusalem with the gospel. Uh, The Samaritans were basically hated by the Jews. There was a 1,000 year racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. They did not mix, they did not get along, but important message for you and me to learn here. The gospel breaks through every racial wall, every racial divide. It doesn't know race, color, nationality. It breaks through every one of those barriers. Don't be surprised if God sends you to people that maybe you don't like. Maybe you don't like their nationality or their skin color or where they came from or their social status. doesn't matter. We don't pick and choose where we take the gospel. The gospel is for all nations. It's for every tribe, every skin color, every nationality. The gospel is for the whole world. And this is a major leap. Philip is now going down to the city of Samaria. Let me just take a moment. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. You can study more on your own. But let me just give you a brief overview of why this is such a big deal. As I mentioned, For more than a thousand years, this racial divide, this wall, had existed between Jews and Samaritans. And it actually goes all the way back to when the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You had the southern kingdom of Judah, which was centered around Jerusalem, And then you had the northern kingdom that moved into the region of Samaria and the environs uh, around Samaria. And over a period of years, the northern uh, elements of the Jewish people, they began to mingle with non-Israelites, and they actually became uh, sort of a half-breed, mongrel people, despised by the true 
Jews and called Samaritans. We need only read one verse to give us a little bit of insight into the reality of this divide. John chapter 4, verses, verse 9, remember, it was a Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. And you can read the whole encounter in John 4 to get the whole uh, power of this, but let me just read one verse and it should be sufficient. John 4, 9. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Notice, there's, there's no blending here. There's a wall between them. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Everybody knew that. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Even though the Samaritans also claimed their descent from Jacob or Israel, and they thought themselves to be true Israelites, actually they were a mixture. They had violated the Jewish laws, and many of them had intermarried with the heathen nations, and thus they became known as sort of a half-breed. They weren't 100% Jewish. Yes, maybe they had a little bit of Israel in their background, but uh, over the years they had moved further and further away from that to the point that they had adopted Mount Gerizim in the north as their official place of worship, uh, a mountain in Samaria, and very different from Mount Zion and Jerusalem, which was the center of worship for the true Jews. And as Jesus and this Samaritan woman are having this discussion, Mount Gerizim would have actually been visible in the background as Jesus and this woman are having their discussion. And remember, Jesus actually refers to that mountain and the Jewish mountain. And he said, uh, basically, this isn't the mountain where Jews worship. And the Jews, even at the time of Philip, they would have still had this deep prejudice against Samaritans, a great dislike for them. They didn't want to go to Samaria. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. So this is a big deal. Even though it's just a few words, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. That's a big deal. That's a real big deal. He's crossing over the line. He's breaking through the wall. He's going to a place where they had not been willing to go for ten years now. And the outcome of that step of faith that Philip takes is profound. 
his ministry explodes with power as he goes to Samaria with the gospel. And because of the way the word of God is received by the Samaritans, I'm sure Philip must have wondered, man, why didn't we come down here sooner? Took us ten years to get down here? Look at the way these Samaritans are responding to the word of God. But I think little by little, they are beginning to understand this gospel is not just for Jews. It's for Jews, it's for Samaritans, it's for Greeks, it's for the whole Gentile world, it's for the whole world, because Jesus had taught them God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the Messiah was sent by God not just to be the glory of Israel, but to be a light to the Gentiles. All right, back to Philip's ministry. Verses 5 to 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. He didn't lecture them on Judaism. He didn't lecture them on how they weren't really practicing the Jewish religion correctly in Samaria. No, that's not why he's sent. He is sent to proclaim Christ. Period. And we will learn later on in the book of Acts that Philip actually does become an evangelist. The office of an evangelist is one of the five ministries listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We find this in Acts 21, verses 8 and 9, much later in church history. But here's what it says. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Very interesting. We reached the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. And in the NIV and a number of the other translations, it actually capitalizes seven to emphasize these are those original seven chosen in Acts 6. Well, he's not called Philip the deacon here. He's Philip the evangelist. And we can certainly see, even in Acts 8, the fruit, the signs, the proof of this man's ministry that He's now gone way beyond waiting on tables. This man is functioning in his office, in his ministry of an evangelist. Verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip, remember, he was proclaiming Christ. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So 
there was great joy in that city. So, Philip is preaching Christ. He's preaching the Word. He's preaching the kingdom of God to the people of Samaria. And certainly, as we will learn later on when Paul writes to Timothy about elders and deacons, this is certainly true about both Philip and Stephen. That those who use the office of a deacon well, it would seem that it's implied in this scripture that I'm going to read, God often, once he sees their faithfulness in that office, he promotes them. He promotes them to other functions, other ministries in the body of Christ. Listen to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13, where Paul is talking about deacons. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those who have served well as deacons. Remember, a deacon is a table waiter. It's an errand runner. They, they, they're servants, menial servants in the church. But when they prove themselves faithful in that task, something seems to happen. They obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in their faith in Christ Jesus. And certainly that's what happened to Stephen. What boldness he obtained in his faith. And now, looking at Philip, what boldness came upon this man as he is promoted, elevated from merely delivering food to the widows to preaching to the masses, to the crowds, the word is used in Samaria. What did he do? He proclaimed Christ. The word there for proclaimed is not the same word that's often used for preach. Preach is the word from which we get evangelize. This is a different word. It's the Greek word keruso, which means to herald, kind of as a public crier or the herald that would go ahead of a king. He would go before the king announcing, proclaiming the arrival of the king, proclaiming his edicts, announcing his kingdom. Uh, That's what Philip is doing here. He's preparing the way for King Jesus to invade Samaria. He's coming into Samaria as a forerunner, an ambassador, a herald proclaiming the coming king, Jesus. And, as with Stephen, notice how God confirms Philip's ministry with many miraculous signs, healings, and deliverance from 
demonic oppression. We're going we're gonna to have to stop here for this session, but we're going to notice next time that as Philip preaches the word to the crowds, there's a great response. Many, many are going to turn to Christ. Many are going to respond obediently to the Lord's command to take water baptism. And, subsequently, many will also be filled with the Holy Spirit just as they had been on the day of Pentecost. But, more about that next time. Now, finally, the Christians in Jerusalem have been launched out, perhaps a better word, driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, preaching the word wherever they go. And everywhere they go, preaching the word, the word is impacting those who listen. Great revival is going to break out in Samaria. Great revival is going to break out everywhere they go, preaching the word of God. But remember, every time God moves, every time the boundaries of the church expand and enlarge, there's going to be opposition, and that's what we're going to find next time. The devil always tries to rear up his ugly head and cause some confusion, try to bring some trouble, but God always squashes the devil and keeps advancing and keeps moving onward, outward, further beyond. The Word of God is going to keep growing, multiplying many, many signs and wonders and miracles. Let's close in prayer for tonight and more about Philip and his great ministry next time. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. How perfect is your Word. Every Word of God is true. Every promise, every prophecy will come to pass exactly the way you spoke it. And maybe it seemed that for ten years what you had spoken wasn't really the way it was going to happen. Jerusalem first, then Judea and Samaria, and then witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. But God, you watch over your word to perform it. And Lord, every part of that promise will be fulfilled in the book of Acts. And now through persecution, great persecution, even the first martyr, Stephen, the church is now launching out into phase two, going to Judea and Samaria, preaching the word of God with awesome results, with you backing up that word with signs and wonders and miracles, with the power of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to hear what you're speaking to us through all of this, that you will stir us up 
You will stir the nest. You will launch us out from our little comfort zones to take the gospel to the nations. Father, I pray for each and every one of us. We would be preparing ourselves, studying to show ourselves approved unto God, getting filled with the Holy Spirit, practicing, using our gifts, growing in faith, learning how to present the basic gospel message of Christ. Because, Lord, you've called every man, woman, and child to evangelize and to be able to speak the message of the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, everywhere they go. Lord, these Christians preached everywhere they went. Let that be our testimony, that we preach Jesus Christ everywhere that we go. Let us have the same boldness, let us have the same faith, the same conviction to preach Christ everywhere that we go. Without fear, without political correctness, help us, O oh God, to speak the Word of God boldly and to know that you're going to stretch out your hand and confirm that Word with mighty signs and wonders. They prayed that in Acts 4 and that is still happening now in Acts 8. And you're still doing it for each one of us today. When we speak the word, you will stretch out your hand to confirm it with signs, wonders, and miracles. We give you praise, we give you honor, and we give you glory tonight. Your word is true. We're privileged, O oh God, to be able to speak your word Use each and every one of us, O oh God, to share this great good news with others, to see people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, to see the demonic bondages and strongholds broken off of their lives, to see sicknesses healed, to see the blind eyes open, the deaf ears open, to see the paralytics and the cripples jumping up and walking. Lord, nothing has changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Stir us up, O God, and use us as vessels for your glory. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, because there is no greater name, there is no name more powerful than that name, the name of Jesus. God bless each and every one. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Cause your face to shine 